0: John Jacob Astor's body was found by the recovery ship the Mackay Bennett on April 22, 1912. His body, numbered 124, was described this way. Male, estimated age 50, light hair and mustache, clothing, blue serge suit, blue handkerchief with initials AV, belt with gold buckle, brown boots with red rubber soles, brown flannel shirt, J.J.A., the initials, on backup collar, And his body was delivered to New York, where on May 4th, his funeral coincided with one of the largest suffrage parades in American history. At 5 p.m., one group of women gathered at Washington Square Park to mount their horses, one leg on each side. Look at the photos online. It's true. And began the equine-assisted march up Fifth Avenue ahead of 10,000 other women and men, to note, many in white and many with votes for women written right across their chest. Writing in front was a 16-year-old Chinese teenager named Mabel Lee. She and her family had come to America through a thin slip of a loophole in the Chinese Exclusion Act because she received a scholarship for... School That spring, the women's rights groups here in the United States reached out to Chinese enclaves around the country, inviting women to join their cause, noting that even though there was extreme political and social upheaval in China, women there voted. Mabel came to meetings and spoke about her beliefs and equal educational opportunities for Chinese children in America. She spoke about the marked prejudice and discrimination her family and other Asian families faced. And when she set astride the horse that day, Mabel rode as a girl on the cusp of womanhood, fighting for what her womanhood in America would look like. And she rode as a Chinese American. So, two very different New Yorks that day. J.J. Astor and his body, a symbol of the old guard, elite, the old money, New York, the traditionalist values of a capitalist and paternalistic society, and Mabel Lee's New York, as she rode on that horse, a young immigrant with hopes of societal change and a voice. In James Cameron's Titanic, when Jack Dawson suggests that Rose Bucator, a 17-year-old, on the cusp of her womanhood, a womanhood that was at that point completely defined by the old money elite social circle to which she belongs, when he suggests that she ride a horse in Santa Monica, like a man, in the surf, like a man, with both legs on each side, It's not just an iconic film moment, but the portrayal of an iconic historical moment for women. It is 1997, but it is also 1912 in that moment. The stories of Titanic are inherently political because those times were inherently political. It was the end of a gilded and repressive era, but the ends had long been fraying that a girl a woman like Rose would be at odds with the expectations of her. Dealing with how those expectations contrasted with what she actually wanted for herself, that makes perfect sense. That Rose also becomes an axe-wielding, completely liberated badass is also (laughs) quite amazing and icing on this cake. Guys, this film is about a woman. I'm LA Beatles and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is back to 1997, the profound feminism of Rose DeWitt Ducator. So before we talk about Rose, I want you to have a better sense of the world that Rose would have lived within and the turmoil that was going on increasingly in 1912. I don't think any of this gets contextualized enough when people critique Cameron's film or even when they just talk about it. We relive the sinking over and over again. Since 1912, we have. I've talked about this a lot. And like I said, Titanic had been a political story since the moment the stern went beneath the water. I don't think anyone would deny that. And please pardon (laughs) the worst of sins of puns, but the story is a vessel for all stories. And in the case of James Cameron's Titanic, it is a feminist tale This movie is about Rose's quick and urgent ascension into modern womanhood, into the 20th century woman in many ways. And to me, this makes perfect sense, especially once I started to dig a little bit into film history, but also the history of women's rights around this time. I think you'll see. The mythologies of the Titanic were created right after the sinking, and a lot of them are tied inextricably to questions of gender, so don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. As Stephen Beale pointed out so well in his book, Down with the Old Canoe, which just aside, it's a cultural history of Titanic that was written pre 1997, except for an afterward he adds later, and I highly recommend it because it sort of exists. Well, I mean, obviously it exists before that film, and so it's before the film took over our cultural notions of the sinking, and so I think it's it's an important moment of an academic book. So as Beale points out, when Titanic went down, Americans were already fighting about gender norms and expectations. So I think it <laughs> I think it gets portrayed a lot um, that you know the moment that Titanic goes down, that's the moment the world changes. And of course, as we've talked a lot about on this podcast, I don't believe that anything changes in a moment. And I think it's important to note that these changes in terms of gender roles and expectations were already happening when Titanic happened. The votes for women movement, uh, as evidenced by the march I mentioned just a moment ago, was building, moving towards a crescendo. The emergence of feminism couldn't be tamped down anymore. Divorce rates were going up. More women were working. (laughs) Remember passenger Helen Candy, I did an episode about her, remember her book, it was called How Women May Earn a Living, but also as Gareth Russell pointed out in the book club episode last week, it was incredibly hard for women to earn a living, and that's the reason Candy had to write the book. So there was an increasing sense of women and even elite women wanting to work, but it wasn't easy and it wasn't obviously completely accepted in society yet. So it was an uphill battle, but the battle had definitely begun traditionalists, those people who wanted women in the kitchen and with the babies, that's the easiest way to describe it, or if they were wealthy, they wanted the women planning the parties and instructing the staff, and that's about it. These traditionalists found in the Titanic disaster, in the narrative, a last-ditch hope of proof that, in their eyes, that women's claim to equality didn't mesh with the natural order of things, as they saw it of course like hungry dogs on raw steak in an alley these mostly white men many of them pastors clergymen community leaders they pounced on the chance to show how the sinking had supposedly returned the world in turmoil back to some sort of equilibrium with women in their you know quote unquote place by the time the carpathia reached new york the myth of the chivalrous sacrificing white male passenger Aster Guggenheim Strauss. This narrative was already firmly in place thanks to the newspapers. The anxiety about changing gender roles was thick in the air. Traditionalists argued that the disaster had shown men were noble knights, and in keeping with mythological talk, the women were damsels, that needed saving in times of extreme distress. There was even a poem penned and printed at the time by a man named Clark McAdams called Enough Said. I'll read it to you. Get ready to cringe. Votes for women was the cry reaching upward to the sky, crushing glass and flashing eye. Votes for women was the cry Boats for women was the cry when the brave were come to die. When the end was drawing nigh, boats for women was the cry. Life has many little jests, insignificant tests. Doubt and bitterness assail, but boats for women tells the tale. In other words, the message of this poem is that how dare women ask for the vote when The ship was going down, and all of these brave men stepped back and stayed calmly on board, and the women had the nerves to get in the lifeboats, often with their children. I think it's really telling that when I went looking for the text of this poem, the main hits I got on Google were from blogs, modern, currently active blogs that um, are, quote, you know, men's rights (laughs) activists. And if you look a little bit closer, um, they are websites that are uh, very anti-feminist and very anti-women, disturbingly. So, I mean, disturbing is just describes my experience there all around. So anyway, this poem is still being evoked against uh, the idea of female equality in America. There you go but femininity was evoked for its softness and goodness and strength when it was convenient though at the top of a perfect example at the top of Southampton High Street there are two titanic memorials one to the engineers that kept generators running kept the ship level and and the lights on as it was sinking so that the boats could be lowered. It's obviously crucial. Uh, So one to them and then one to the musicians on board. Both memorials have a female figure. The engineer's one is 19 feet high and 32 feet long with a seven foot angel glory holding a laurel wreath in each hand. And the engineers are depicted at the post's beneath it. The musician's memorial is smaller. It's four feet across, four feet high, and has a female representing grief. It's carved from marble, and she's holding the ship as if to try to prevent it from going down, from sinking. So the angel with the engineers sort of represents maybe acceptance and closure and obviously gratitude, while the angel with the musicians is more, that scene is more sort of guttural and emotional and um, upsetting. It's sort of the sort of grabbing on and almost, you know, not the not accepting of what's happening when you're kind of grasping, um, even though you know something bad is happening and you can't stop it. So it's a modern event that could be interpreted so differently. You know, even if you think about the representation of a woman in these two memorials or how women and gender were used in so many ways, even in 1912 already, to represent sort of the cultural impact of the disaster or to interpret what the disaster meant to people. It was a modern event that could be interpreted through so many eyes and Even then, it already was. There was the story of third-class passenger Daniel Buckley, who escaped under a shawl he believed was handed to him by Madeline Astor, actually, J.J. Astor's teenage and expectant wife. She was pregnant, I believe, five months pregnant. Buckley was pointed out right away as a coward in the press, and when a reporter asked another male survivor if he had escaped that way by wearing a piece of woman's clothing, the man punched the reporter. Male survivors faced a persistent backlash, uh, expected to explain in detail the circumstances of their survival in the place of a woman or a child. Men like Archibald Gracie and wireless operator Harold Bride got a pass because they only survived by clinging onto the infamous overturned collapsible boat, which they only boarded after essentially going down with the ship and then swimming back up for air. Crew were exempt largely from scrutiny, obviously because they had been ordered onto these boats by officers. But for the most part, if you were a man and you survived, you spent the rest of your life explaining why (laughs) imagine that and that's not to excuse any behaviors or to excuse any narratives that are anti-women or anti-feminist but it's I mean that's the other that's the flip side of this is is that there are anxieties around survivor's guilt and I don't know that might have for men that might have played a role in how they spoke of (laughs) what happened so there you go to show both sides of it But just think for a second. So the narrative that emerges in April 1912, we still live with it. Think about it. We really, really do. Ida and Isidore Strauss, the owner of Macy's, the owners of Macy's, on the deck near the end, Ida is overheard saying that she'd stay with her husband no matter what, that they had lived together and would die together. And did you know that that story was actually carved into Titanic mythology very purposefully because traditionalists latched on to the story to uphold what they perceived as the values of marriage and the main job of a woman, a woman of any class. And in this case, she's first class, she's elite class. The job of any woman was loyalty to her husband. Think about the narrative we've lived with, that the rich white male stood back that night and died quietly with honor and didn't ask to get on those lifeboats, but it's not all true at all. At, at all, In the case of J.J. Astor, it's especially not true. It's well documented that when he put his pregnant wife, Madeline, into the lifeboat, he asked to come along with her and was denied entry. We still live with the narrative that First class men behaved like gentlemen, like Guggenheim calmly asking for his brandy, while the third class men supposedly raged and mutinied and clawed and grasped. The New York Times editorialized in 1912 already that all the bloodshed happened, quote, among the steerage passengers— without any context of the disadvantages of the third class that night, how they were kept below decks, how many spoke no English, how they were misinformed and confused. We have slept on all this, even even academics, even historians. We've slept on this. We've been lazy with this. We allow this narrative to continue. The stories of chaos and fear for all of the classes, they've always been there in the documents, we've just kind of looked away from certain cases. We have allowed even through the decades of writing that has, you know, progressively included more female authors, more third class of voices, and so on, we've still allowed the chivalry to be the kind of crowning achievement of the Anglo-Saxon male on Titanic. But a lot of women were already trying to fix this narrative in 1912. One woman in the May march that year, they spoke about at the intro, was dressed as Joan of Arc. They were already, women were already ready for a battle. The armor wasn't on a male in that case, it was on a female. If we stick with the hero myth, right, which is a language I think we kind of all understand for the most part, then think about Jack and Rose in terms of the typical archetypes you'd expect. Audiences have typically expected a male hero in epics like this movie is, like Titanic is. But for as compassionate and inspiring as Jack is, the Jack we meet at the beginning of the film is the Jack that dies hanging on to Rose's hand he's not on a hero's journey. He's already been on his journey. He tells the audience about his journey at that first-class dinner in the first-class dining saloon in his tux when he lifts his glass and says, make it count. He's told the table his journey, that he lost his parents at 15 and that he's been traveling the world to find himself, which he you know, from everything we can gather of his behavior and his attitude and his loving nature, he has in some ways completed. The Jack we meet is the Jack that dies. But Rose is on a hero's journey, a heroine's journey. I received a lot of messages over the past few weeks from you guys about rewatching the movie since, you know, I've been doing this series. And For the first time in a while, you have told me, (laughs) you're sitting down to watch this film that you know meant so much to you when you were younger, maybe, and overwhelmingly what you're telling me in these messages is that in the rewatch as an adult, the main thing you realize is that this movie isn't Leo's movie at all, and it's not even the ship's movie in many ways, that this movie is Kate Winslet's movie and this movie is Rose's movie. And I completely agree and have had the same experience. I I went over this in my episode I did about Leo's career and Don't Look Up and um, that was... <laughs> talk about a vanity episode for me. I do think... I think, I mean, I did receive quite a few comments and messages from people saying that the kind of going over his filmography was, you know, kind of enlightening and fun. And so I hope that you found value in that episode. It definitely was a fanfic of an episode for me. I enjoyed doing it. But I revealed in that episode, you know, my kind of origin story with this movie, which is that I was, you know, there <laughs> those first weekends in December, in a mall movie theater, just absolutely falling in love with Leonardo DiCaprio. And so for me, so much of the movie when I was younger was tied to that feeling and tied to him. And I've obviously stayed a lifelong fan of his, and that's never going to change. But when I started re-watching this in my 20s and 30s, and I'm 37 now, I realized more and more that the things I was getting out of the movie now as an adult, as a mother, as a woman, were so much about Rose's story. And if you watch the movie as an adult, I think, then enlightened perhaps by quite a bit of life, you realize that it is completely about her. It is completely about her journey. And Jack Dawson is a spark <laughs> and an aid But I think it's, I mean, I think it's a testimony just to Leo's charm that the reputation of the movie became so much about him, but it's not Jack Dawson's movie, it's Rose's movie. And if you go back to the history of Titanic's depiction on film, even in just this analysis, it's kind of amazing to think so in 1953, there's Hollywood's Titanic, and I do have a, a Titanic on film episode about that. But the romance narrative is actually quite similar <laughs> in that when there's nothing really life-changing about it, but the daughter of the first-class family does end up falling for someone who's not as rich as her family's, sort of portrayed as this plucky college kid that's more Midwestern and kind of middle America. Uh, but he's still in first class. So she's going to go from being very rich to being just a little rich. So uh, not quite the same. And the mom in that movie is vilified, really, for being more masculine and independent, for wanting to, you know, Take off and have a new life with her kids and give them a chance at a and more normal quote unquote life. And she's also vilified for initiating a sexual encounter that was her infidelity. There's, you know, if you've listened to that episode I did, or if you've watched that movie, there's the big reveal that, you know, the son is not the son of the first class father. Anyway, paternity, you don't really expect a paternity drama in a Titanic movie, but that's what you get in that one. So anyway, there's this big reveal about her initiating the sexual encounter that was an infidelity in her marriage, so she's vilified for that, and she was sort of a feminist at the beginning of the movie, but she essentially has to apologize for it by the end of the movie and take it all back. There are some similarities here that I am begrudgingly admitting. In 1997's Titanic, there is this kind of idea of American individualism and ruggedness through the Jack Dawson character. There is this sense that him as a Midwestern farm boy, (laughs) uh, you know, lights a spark in Rose because he is that sort of, you know, middle America more normal, down-to-earth, as opposed to the, you know, the European kind of elite nature of the world that the wealthy are coming from. So there is a little bit of similarity there, but in this one, in the 1953 movie, the men are there at the end, in the myth we know, literally singing on deck a hymn as they go down valiantly with the ship. Brave and welcoming, almost, it seems, death. So I would say that's a pretty crucial difference, (laughs) even though there are some similarities in the gender uh, dynamics between 53 and 97. So that's a crucial difference. And the most crucial difference being that in 1997, obviously, it is the woman who looks right at death and jumps back onto a sinking ship. Then there is a night to remember, and that's just a different depiction altogether in terms of gender. Lightoller is the star. He's middle class. He's male. Again, these middle class male sensibilities are shown to be sort of you know the apex of normalcy. What you would strive towards. What would bring equilibrium? That's similar. The ship is also really the star. The movie, A Night to Remember, is mathematical, really, and at the time it was referred to as a near documentary because of this. If anything, it's less about gender and more about class and Britishness, and I have to admit, I mean, I did a Titanic on film episode about A Night to Remember, and I still don't think I fully understand my own thoughts about the analysis of that movie and what it means in terms of film history and and the study of class and, and where it... Kind of falls in terms of comparisons to the 97 movie. I did that episode and I fell all over the place. I think it's a pretty good episode and I uncovered a lot of interesting, you know, kind of facts about the making of it. But I don't know. Maybe a year from now, I need to go back and redo that episode when I just feel more comfortable with my thoughts about it. And then, of course, there's Raise the Titanic in the 80s. The women in this movie are completely inconsequential. The ship is the woman. That's the big thing in Raise the Titanic. The ship is the woman that these men are in a relationship with. The idea... Oh, and I have an episode about that one too. All three of these. There you go. It was, was busy in the fall on the film ones. I, By the way, I will go back to doing those eventually. I just... I did sort of what I consider the core films. And then I'm trying to to find the time... And figure out how I want to cover maybe some of the mini series that have been done and, and things like that, or maybe some more of the documentaries. So maybe we'll get, we'll, we'll get back to that. Anyway, so the ship as a woman. The idea of a ship as a feminine presence has become a part of naval history, obviously, but also our culture, just completely. But the reason for it isn't actually pinned down. Some sources suggest it's because the Latin word for ship, navis, is feminine. But as some online sources I poked around pointed out, this doesn't make much sense in other contexts. For example, we get the word table from the Latin word tabula, also feminine, but we don't think of tables as women. The she could have held a connotation of motherhood, protection, which obviously is something that you desire in a vessel on the dangerous ocean. There's irony though in this since the presence of an actual woman on board a ship was considered bad luck in, say, the 18th century. It was believed to be a distraction to sailors on board. (laughs) But in modern conversations, it's no accident that ships are she's, that they're referred to this way. We talk about their lines and their shape. Robert Ballard referred to Titanic as a woman he was basically in a relationship with when he found the wreck in 1985. If you read some of his own accounts of finding that ship and describing it, it's, it's sort of insane how much he's evoking this narrative of a female All the people who dived the wreck, including Cameron and his cadre, used the language of penetration when discussing exploring the wreck. It's insane. In the 1997 film, Andrews tells Rose, Thomas Andrews tells Rose, quote, she, the ship, is the only lifeboat you need. For a society that wanted women in a weak role, tethered to their men, they sure wanted to equate the feminine with the power of a ship like this. A lot of people critique the framing device of Brock Lovett and Old Rose in the 97 movie, but Cameron's contrast between technology and the very male pursuit of the heart of the ocean contrasted with the female experience of the bulk of the movie everything through rose's eyes that's not an accident just like it wasn't a secret in 1996 when the script was circulating in hollywood that this movie was a feminist take paramount producer sherry lansing said quote it was a great love story with an underlying message about female empowerment we didn't rediscover this movie as a feminist tale guys this takes cameron's agency away this takes Kate Winslet's agency away in her portrayal of Rose. It's always been a feminist take. N- female roles of the 1980s so in the decade immediately preceding this, these were in popcorn movies that sort of portrayed women as just existing to tell you more about the men or to you know, further the men's story along. Some examples, you know, (laughs) a woman enslaved and wearing a metal bikini in Return of the Jedi, Um, a woman getting kidnapped by heroin smuggling Vietnam vets, lethal weapon, Uh, women being held hostage by radical German terrorists, die hard, Uh, a woman inspiring men through their hotness, top gun, As Rebecca Keegan has pointed out, quote, Hollywood didn't invent this reductive use of female characters, who was Helen of Troy but the motivation for some sensationalist battle sequence. But in an era of films driven by special effects and action set pieces, the movie industry let its female characters languish to new depths, quote, unquote. And she means in the 1980s that it languished to new depths. Depths. And Cameron, James Cameron, really flips this, starting with the Terminator and his script for that movie. He says, quote, Sarah Connor had a strength even she doesn't know exists. And I think that can be very applicable to Rose as well. In Aliens, Cameron saw the character Ripley as the leader of a ragtag combat group and in the tradition of, you know, the Alamo, Sahara, Dirty Dozen, but with a woman as a leader. The leaders had always been men before in this kind of scenario. And just to note, Sigourney Weaver was the first woman to be Oscar nominated for a science fiction film that year. Then there's The Abyss and Lindsay, the female character. She's a, she's a truly spiky uh, heroine. She's viewed by the men as a bitch to come and ruin their fun, but her strength prevails, and her perspective prevails, and she is shown to have great compassion and to understand sort of holistically what's going on around her and and what's going on underwater. (laughs) And uh, that's crucial. In Terminator 2, Linda Hamilton, I talked about this uh, in my James Cameron episode, she uh, works with an ex-Israeli commander to get in shape for that movie. She's totally ripped Arnold Schwarzenegger comes on set and notoriously screams, Linda, you're ripped to shreds. <laughs> and this was back before women typically change their bodies for roles. This was a really big deal. A Time Magazine article said something about her being like Rambo in drag. Good God, <laughs> that's problematic. But the thing is, Linda Hamilton in T2, thats a that's a huge moment for women in movies, women in action movies, women carrying action movies in many ways. So it's an important Hollywood moment. There's True Lies. There's the stripping scene in True Lies. Critics called it misogynist uh, at the time, but there's a different reading of that, actually. There's a reading of it that calling it misogynist actually discounts Jamie Lee Curtis's input in the power and planning of a scene like that. And this is a common problem I think with critics. Curtis had a lot of input on this actually. The original script had her getting completely naked, but in silhouette, uh, Curtis was bold about wanting to do the scene down to her bra and panties in full light and allow herself to be seen more and to make it awkward and comedic and even pulled off her clothes in James Cameron's office and did the striptease right there. So they worked in a fall, <laughs> which uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger did not know. So if you see that scene in True Lies and she comedically falls, uh, Schwarzenegger actually breaks character for a second. And you can see him start to get up out of the chair to help her. And then he realizes what's going on and goes with the scene. But it's a little a little tidbit that's interesting. Karen James of The Times called Curtis's evolution in the film From a mousy legal secretary to a tangoing super spy, witty and liberating. This idea of a female housewife stereotype falling to pieces. Jamie Lee Curtis won a Golden Globe for that performance, which I didn't know until about a day ago. (laughs) And Cameron really helps to create this 90s action female heroine, which completely 100% informs... So many movies of of the early 2000s, the mid-2000s, up until now, the way that characters like Laura Croft are portrayed, uh, there's movies like A Quiet Place and Emily Blunt's character. Speaking of Emily Blunt, movies like Sicario. It's just, I mean, in, in his own movie moving forward, Avatar and the Women of the Na'vi, I... It's, I could, (laughs) I didn't, this part isn't even in my script. I could sit here and just think of all of the female action heroes of the late 90s and into the 2000s and up to now that are influenced by Cameron's women in his movies it would be boring because I would just sit here and every four seconds say a name, but just think about that. There's so many, and those were just the first couple that came to my mind, but it's it's such an obvious through line. There's also, I want to mention while we're talking a little bit about film history, there's also definitely a tradition of films that show you know, some sort of stilted elite person being softened by the working class. There's, you know, movies like Overboard, uh, Sabrina, both, obviously both incarnations of it. I, the the newest one, it's not new at all anymore. It's probably 30 to 35 years old, but the one with Harrison Ford and Julie Armand, that Sabrina, I remember just absolutely adoring that film. But that That movie definitely falls into that category. Uh, And in most of these movies, it's the woman that is sort of working class and less elite and enlightening and softening the men, the biggest example of the 90s era being pretty woman, which it's funny how things all sort of tie together when you don't expect it. So my husband and I were cooped up a lot the last couple of weeks. We had some COVID in our house. Thanks, Thankfully, everybody is 100% fine, <laughs> knock on wood, and we're good, but we had that going on and then bad weather, so we were just at home a lot. And watching a lot of movies, and I discovered that my husband had never seen Pretty Woman, which is, you know, as a woman born in 1984 and who came of age in the 90s, it's just, I can't, I had to fix that immediately. He had to understand that cultural reference immediately. So we watched it. And when there is the dinner scene where Julia Roberts, you know, gets dolled up, and is suddenly in the fancy dining room with the elite people and she's, you know, obviously the the working class woman thrown into a fish out of water situation. Obviously, I mean maybe it's not obvious to most people. It's obvious in this household. My husband and I started having the conversation about comparing that scene to Jack Dawson appearing at dinner in Titanic and, you know, the gender roles are flipped. But Jack Dawson popping into the dining saloon in that tuxedo, fish out of water. Anyway, there's definitely, you know, you could probably write an essay on that. You could probably write an essay comparing Julia Roberts's character in Pretty Woman to Jack Dawson's character in Titanic. Maybe I'll do it. I have no time to do that. Somebody <laughs> somebody out there, please write that because I think there's there's some meat there. There's a lot to unpack there. But long story short I was thinking about Pretty Woman in terms of this movie. So just to recap from earlier episodes too, in this series I'm doing, in this 97 series, Cameron, in 1996, as he makes this movie, he's reviving the Hollywood epic. And I talked a lot about that in previous episodes. And he's doing so with a woman in the lead. This is a big deal. The intellectual legacy of this, of this being a woman's story has eroded over the last 25 years. And we'll talk about that more next week. But a big part of the reason for that erosion is the film's relationship to inspiring young women and being loved by women. Let me take this time right now <laughs> to let you know that when I went searching for, you know, research and all of this, essays, articles, book chapters, I found a shocking, truly shocking number of academic articles written about the movie and published in the late 90s and early 2000s in academic journals, you know, ones that are on JSTOR, including two entire volumes, two entire books that I will post in my show notes. And a lot of them are intense, guys. They're esoteric. I mean, I'm an academic and I endured years and years of grad colloquia, and I completed comps, comprehensive exams in four fields. Um, once thought I might just die on a table at three o'clock in the morning because I was trying to read four books on the French Revolution in one night, you know, that sort of thing. So I've been there in that academic milieu, and even I, <laughs> this stuff was hard to dig through, So to take the time to apply gender theory or hundreds of years of class theory to a movie like this, that takes time on the part of these writers, these academics. It takes time and commitment. And I find it funny that so many of the academics who took the time to do this made sure to eviscerate the film in the process. So this tells me that they either secretly love the movie and hate themselves for loving the movie, or they were so angered by the film that they were compelled to spend months and months in a library. Either way, they got worked up, um, which has meaning in itself. You'd also this one's tough to talk about, but it must be mentioned. You'd also be shocked, I hope you'd be shocked, at how many critical and academic essays in the late 90s and early 2000s mention Kate Winslet's body and call her beauty, quote, unconventional because of her weight in some way. I'm not going to mention names here because I would get so mad. (laughs) And then I'm sure... I just would make myself, you know, open to people getting mad at me for mentioning names and getting so mad. And a lot of the academics that wrote these articles are still publishing and working today, obviously. So I just am not going to do that. But it's a really disheartening <laughs> thing. If you know anything about Kate Winslet, she's talked pretty openly about how she suffered greatly during this period, especially in the late 90s with the press and how they hounded her and talked about her body. You know, this is academic writers being unshockingly um, kind of completely daft and thoughtless. And you cannot call out women's bodies in the name of scholarship. You can't do that. It really disturbed me uh, several instances I saw where because a paper was being published in an academic journal, the author thought it was okay to talk about perceptions of American female bodies and how her body fell. It it just fell into that. It just was really disturbing. And it's remarkably false, too, because Kate Winslet's beauty is unparalleled and stunning and gleaming and was then and is now. <laughs> and she carries the entire film, you know, men and women all over the world fell in love with her and are still in love with her, including me and my husband. And, you know, as I talked about in the making of episode, James Cameron picked her partly because literally when he put the camera on her in a screen test, he couldn't find a bad angle on her. So anyway, waiting through it all, uh, some of it was murky, obviously, and dated, <laughs> very dated. I thought about Rose and the film itself in ways I had never before by reading and and uh, wading through all of this. So there was worth, and for that, I'm thankful. I just believe there's always a simple way to explain things if you truly understand them. And that's the point I tried to get at for you for this episode, and I hope I'm doing a good job of that. So back to the archetypes and the hero myth. If Rose is the heroine, hers is a trial by shipwreck, and her melancholia is cured only by shedding status, wealth, the entire capitalist society represented by the ship itself. Her horrid fiancé gal even calls her melancholic at one point in the scene where he approaches her at her dressing table with the heart of the ocean in hand, Cal and her mother, Ruth, have been invested in making her into a woman who sits there and performs femininity and modesty and virtue, which is ironic, spoiler alert, considering what we'll talk about here in a minute. But in her suicide attempt, in her melancholia, it seems at the beginning she might be that archetypal damsel in distress, but by the time she's in the water with the axe, or spitting in Cal's face to go save Jack, she has shed any vestige of a former self, any vestige of a girl kept in the china cabinet of her mainline society life. The spitting scene uh, coming, you know, right after the horse, the suggestion of riding the horse one leg on each side, the spitting scene with Jack is the first physical break from gender roles in the movie. The first break from the societal roles, really. It's a scene no one but James Cameron went to bat for in 1996 when they were filming until the day they shot it when other people on set realized how good it was. But I think in the end, it does work. It's earnest. Jack is a boy here. Basically, I mean, he's twenty in the movie, but he might as well be fifteen in this scene. For how he finds joy in the simple acts of liberating or helping to liberate Rose, there's a great scene that's deleted uh, from this film. If you, you know, it's obviously easy to find the deleted scenes on YouTube, or you can grab the the DVD special editions from over the years. There's a deleted scene where Jack and Rose are walking on deck some more in that afternoon sunlight. And she's talking about wanting to work with her hands and wanting to work um, and not sit idle anymore. And she says she may wanna be a dancer, she may wanna be an actress. And she sort of floats around the deck and is very happy. And Jack just sort of stands back and watches her with this smile on his face. It's very Leo, it's a great Leo smile. And he's just observing her. So yes, he may be helping to liberate her, but the joy and the spark and the potential is already there. And I think, I wish that had made it into the movie because I think that's a, a great moment to illustrate what their relationship was developing as at that moment, that he was overjoyed just to be witnessing her, just to be part of, of her life and to hear her words and to hear her plans for herself. Anyway, just an aside there. Jack doesn't want to <laughs> buy women as gal. You know, obviously these archetypes like Cal with the heart of the ocean, with his wealth, with his status. He wants to buy women to buy Rose. Jack doesn't want that. He wants to see them. He wants to see them without the walls up, like with Rose running and dancing on deck. There is, <laughs> there is the Archibald Gracie line in the movie. We talked a lot about Archibald Gracie in the episode I did with Gareth Russell. If you haven't listened to that, please do. The one from last week, the Ship of Dreams book club episode. Funnily enough, we talk a little bit about Rose to a few gator. Uh Gareth doesn't feel the same way I do about Rose, but is was, you know, some healthy debate and fun conversation. And I appreciate his perspective so much. So there is the Archibald Gracie line in the 97 movie, quote, women and machinery do not mix. (laughs) This is after Jack has saved Rose from the suicide attempt and they are all on deck and Rose is in the blanket and Gracie's got the brandy and he's ready to get back to dinner or more likely back to drinks and cigars. But it's with a wink that Cameron puts this line in, I think, because Rose does become the machinery in the flying scene in this movie. She becomes the figurehead of the ship. And the figurehead, the woman you would often see on the bow of a ship, this was often carved and often modeled after daughters of sea captains or the sweethearts of sailors. Like I mentioned earlier, there weren't women on board, you know, sailing vessels. You think about 18th, 19th century. But the figurehead, the woman on the bow was meant to protect the sailors from the evils of the sea. And Rose essentially becomes that. And if I ever met James Cameron, I would, this is one of my questions. This would be one of my top movie related questions, which is, you know, that iconic scene where Jack and Rose are on the bow and they're flying and Rose becomes the head she's becomes the head of the ship, the figurehead. She embodies that exact spot where on older vessels that carved woman would have been. And she's got her arms outstretched. And I would love to know if that was purposeful because it feels very purposeful. So yeah, Rose essentially becomes the ship in that moment and the power of it. All right, the drawing scene. <laughs> so I think, and I just want to say, Everything that I'm going to communicate about the scenes between Jack and Rose, especially, is an amalgam of so many interviews, podcasts, articles that I've read. I will be I will have a blog post on my website with some pretty in, some pretty detailed citations and sources from this episode. And you know, I really, really like to source my episodes, but I'm not going to lie, it would be really hard for me to specifically nail down where every single one of these thoughts about Rose comes from in this episode because for the past year, really, I've been listening to. Podcast episodes about the movie, where people just sort of recount their personal experiences with it. Um, I mentioned the episode from the podcast "You Are Good" last week. They did a fantastic episode about Titanic and talked a lot about Rose. Their thoughts influenced me. That's just one example of twenty, <laughs> and that's just podcast. That's just you know, in podcasting, obviously I love it. Is a great medium because it is a chance to just sit back and hear people talk about the things that you love and want to talk about as well. And so I'll admit, I've been influenced by a hundred things as I've developed this episode. So no, not every single thing I'm going to say about Rose moving forward is an original thought. It's not. It's influenced not only by my own emotions and how they've evolved over the years, but also, you know, what I've heard everybody else say about Rose. So, you know, thank you to the internet and thank you to podcasting and thank you to YouTube and the availability of every clip or interview I could ever want but it would be impossible to you know tell you every place that these thoughts come from all right so the drawing scene and again a lot of these thoughts are ones that are so different for me now as as I've watched it as an adult versus when I was 13 but you know you notice watching this movie as an adult that in the drawing scene, Rose is really confident and Jack is not at all. And she also pays him, which is a real flip of the sort of male-female roles in this. Uh, (laughs) She's paying him for the drawing. So the drawing is going to belong to her and she's going to own it. Just as she owns her own body as she disrobes and takes control of her body and her sexuality in that moment. She becomes, you know, always think of Rose as, like, one of Botticelli's women. If you've seen, like, Botticelli's painting about the birth of Venus, she's, you know, she becomes a goddess in that moment, sort of of her own making, at least in my opinion. So to have a conversation about the drawing scene and then the the scenes that will come after that you have to have a conversation about sexual agency and it's you know this goes back to the conversation about the sexual politics of 1912 and what was brewing you know, it's a myth that people didn't know about or experience or talk about female sexuality until the 1960s. <laughs> you know, I think we uh, we grow up with our history textbooks that tell us, you know, women's liberation, 1960s, bra burning, suddenly women are talking about and having sex and in, in tune with their sexuality. But, you know, women have been in tune with their sexuality in many ways since, you know, women were women. And there's, um, it's actually... <laughs> goes back Gareth I'm sorry I'm fangirling again but this you know goes back to Gareth Russell I've actually been reading his book about Catherine Howard I wanted to read another one of his books that was you know not Titanic era I'm reading his book about Catherine Howard which is called Young and Damned and Fair it's phenomenal and there's I'm learning so much I didn't know there's this great section where Catherine Howard is younger and before she's obviously married to Henry VIII. She's, uh, but would become his fifth, fifth wife, but she is of, you know, pretty elite birth and this is the, you know, 16th century and she is known by people in her social circle to be sexually active with, uh, I think, if it, I can't remember if it was one or two of the men that she kind of courted with prior to moving to Henry VIII's court and eventually marrying him and that she talked openly about being aware of how not to get pregnant In the sexual act she was participating in so you know (laughs) that's just I I actually was honestly shocked about the frankness of which the women seem to be talking and writing to each other about this stuff in the 16th century in England so I you know there you go but it just it's never kind of walk knock those walls down of thinking that there are just moments where groups of people awaken to (laughs) ideas it's you know It's not really, it doesn't really work that way. Uh, More often, it's just that, you know, something becomes more accepted in society, but obviously it's been going on before then. You know, this idea that Rose discovers her sexual agency is crucial to talking about this movie and crucial to talking about women in the early 20th century a lot of women Rose's age would have been kind of going through this journey. I mean, just as in any era of history on some level, they are. But for Rose to be so brazen about her sexual desire, that would have been, I think, exceptional for 1912, given the background that she comes from and the sheltered nature of the of the world that she's Lived in, this movie could have easily been back to you know expected archetypes, could have been the story of a very cold and unmoving rich girl who was softened by the working class boy and seduced by the working class boy who enlightens her, but it's not really. If you think about it, I think if you've only ever seen this movie one time when you were 15, then maybe you think that's what it is, but it's not because Rose actively pursues Jack from the moment that she goes down to third class to find him the day after the suicide attempt. She pursues him pretty much through this entire film. She's the instigator for most of it. And for women to openly pursue and enjoy sex at this point in time would have been a a big deal to be so open about, if that makes sense. Like I said, of course, women were thinking about sex. Women have always thought about sex, but for her to present to Jack in this open way, I think that's where the sort of revolutionary kind of aspect of it comes from, in terms of, you know, the progressive aspect of it comes from, in terms of 1912. So the diamond, you know, has been called a MacGuffin <laughs> in the story, and a lot of people have discounted the importance of the heart of the ocean in the movie, but the diamond here is important because it initially represents, you know, her as a possession, her as Cal's possession. It represents everything cold and unfeeling from her former life And then because she wears it in this drawing, it's sort of transformed into something that's associated with Jack that becomes about love and compassion. And it becomes, you know, know, she keeps it, we find out later her whole life, it becomes sentimental, not because Cal gave it to her, but because of the opposite, because she took over uh, control of what it meant and it becomes sentimental and associated with Jack So she kind of removes the diamond from this capitalist system that it came from and is a part of through Cal, and she makes it into a symbol of her own power and her own sexuality. She sort of reworks the logic of what we think of as the male gaze because, like I mentioned, she's buying the drawing from Jack And she is the architect of her fate here. So a diamond is forever, (laughs) but not in the way that Cal thinks it should be, but in this very erotic sense in terms of her relationship to Jack. Which also, you know, talking about her connections to Cal and the diamond, Lead me to what I think is maybe one of the most crucial conversations to have about Rose in this movie. And by the way, if you haven't picked up on it already, obviously, I am talking about, you know, sexual agency. I'm talking about the act of sex a little bit. So I mean, it's a very in a kind of a clinical analytical way, but obviously, I don't know that this is the best episode for your kids to be listening to if they're in the backseat of a car kind of thing. I mean, this is definitely a, quote, clean podcast, um, as you probably know if you've listened to it. But in terms of this analysis, there's just no way to not talk about this. And as a historian... Uh, this is really important to me in terms of this movie and also in terms of, it's important to me in terms of just a, a, being a fan of this movie for 25 years and thinking about it in terms of my own identity and my own emotions and how I perceive it. So anyway, turn it off if there's tiny kids in your back seat, maybe for the rest of, or for the next 10 minutes. I don't know. Just a suggestion. So here's the thing, guys. Um, about to <laughs> maybe make a lot of people mad. I don't know, maybe not mad. Maybe I'll just make a lot of people rethink something. But guys, I don't think that Rose is a virgin in this movie. I think that for a lot of women... Who saw this movie when we were, you know, young and very innocent, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 seem to be very common ages for having fallen in love with this movie, some even younger. That this narrative kind of talk about the creation of narrative, that this narrative took holds that because Rose is 17 and she's from this elite social circle where a woman's virginity would have been very prized and necessary for a marriage. That we just assumed that she was virginal and that cow was kind of circling, but hadn't acted on his desires in that way yet, that she was kind of walking to her execution and the execution was not only marriage, but the wedding night and that the wedding night would be when she would have to, you know, (laughs) you know, kind of be cows. I think young women watching this movie just assumed that was the narrative. I think, and I can speak for myself here, we also liked the idea of Jack being Rose's first. I mean, he's a fantasy, right? In terms of being a first sexual partner. I think young people watching this movie wanted the innocence of that to be true. And I always thought that. In fact, I always interpreted, you know, the scene. So let's go through some of the sort of evident, let's go through our evidentiary support here. <laughs> um, there's the scene at breakfast after the steerage dancing party where he says, I hoped you would come to me last night. And I think I and a lot of people interpreted this as Callis trying to entice her to have sex with him before they get married, but that he hasn't been successful yet. Now, looking at that scene, you know, he also says, you're my wife in practice, if not yet, in practice, if not yet by law. Now, as an adult, I see that scene, and it seems very crystal clear to me that he is saying, we have already, in practice, acted as man and wife. I think he's talking about sex. And I think that if he had expected Rose to come to his room, then that was a precedent that was already set. They'd been traveling through Europe, staying at hotels, and this idea that, you know, after Ruth went to bed or something, that she would, you know, come to his rooms. I think that this scene shows that there was maybe a precedent for that. There's also a deleted scene where Trudy, her maid, is going on and on about being the first, one of the first people to sleep in the beds on Titanic, And Cal creepily comes up to Rose and says, when I get in the bed tonight, I'll be the first. I'll still be the first. And again, even when I was younger and I saw that deleted scene, I thought that more fed into this idea that she was walking to her sort of execution. But the more I think about it, (laughs) uh, it seems to me that I think Rose had already been expected to go to bed with Cal. And I think she already had. And I think that that explains some of the sadness in her eyes. Um, I think that explains perhaps the suicide attempt even more and creates more of a darkness around that. I think it also, this theory is serviced by the fact that she is not nervous when she takes her clothes off in front of Jack. She is not nervous in the sex scene in the Renault. She's not nervous, he's nervous. And even in the sort of after scene, Jack is the one who is shaking, and she is not. He asks her if she's nervous when they first get in the car, and she very confidently says no. And I think when I was younger, I romanticized that and thought, oh, well, it's her first time, but she's not nervous because it's someone like Jack, but I... Now I just have a different reading of that. And the other thing that's interesting is that for as much as sort of fans of the movie and the cultural history of the movie has kind of developed this theory of, you know, Rose the Virgin, Cal circling, academic interpretations of the movie seem to just very blatantly say that Cal and Rose seem to have already established a sexual relationship. So, (laughs) again, it's just evidence that I think as sentimental young kids watching this movie, we yearned for that storyline for Rose. We we yearned for that virginal storyline for Rose. But I think it's sort of been hidden in plain sight the whole time. And I think academics who had less invested on the emotional end of the movie could see it. You know, as early as these articles I found from the late 90s, they very plainly state this. For a lot of the super fans of the movie, it's just not something that we were willing to think about quite yet. I would love to hear what you think. My husband was shocked that I had changed my theory on this. I've always gone with the previous theory and he was sort of you know mouth agape and couldn't believe that I had swung so far in the other direction on Rose but I think if in this new theory <laughs> the new theory even though obviously it's not new Rose has even more agency I think it's even more powerful because if Cal has kind of taken that away from her and um hopefully not forcefully but given his propensity for violence that we see in the movie, it's possible that he has. She sort of reaffirms her power in that and has sex with who she wants to with Jack and doesn't allow the sort of desolation of that, of maybe Cal having, you know, forced or convinced her to enter into that relationship. She doesn't let that inform her self moving forward. So it's even, I think, more powerful and an even more feminist reading of Rose in that interpretation. But I would love to hear what you think. I know a lot of people on the internet passionately believe the opposite. So genuinely interested if you have a thought on that. So if we go back to the sort of discussion of the archetypes, the hero heroine, heroine, my my brain, the hero heroine comparison, Then they're also, you know, after the sex scene and the ship hits the iceberg, there is this loyalty test moment where Rose, for a brief, you know, window, believes that Jack stole the heart of the ocean and kind of not necessarily goes back to Ruth and Cal, but sort of sighs and ends up back in the suites and has to kind of be presented in front of Cal and own up to what she's done. And she seems to have a moment of weakness, and this is kind of her loyalty test. So I think that very much fits into this heroine storyline. And then we get to her saving—oh, spitting in Cal's face. That's a big moment. But then we get to, you know, her with the axe. And I think this is the iconic Kate Winslet image. The iconic Rose image is, is her holding this axe, saving Jack. She's left her mother and cow behind. She's gone into the bowels of a sinking ship to find the man that she loves, and she's going to save him no matter what and no matter what she has to do. You know, in American lore and mythology, the axe has always been male uh, associated with men, obviously. When Rose picks up that axe, she sheds every bit of her former life. It's trial by iceberg, trial by frigid water, trial by... Tragedy and the rest of the film is the heroine's journey. Jack is along for the ride and he carries his weight, of course. And we, I adore Leo, love Leo, but it's Rose's decisions that mold the way we see the sinking from this juncture onward. And I think probably the most crucial scene, at least for me, in the actual sinking scenes. Is when she jump when she does, she jumps back on a sinking ship after, you know, she's been put in the lifeboat by Jack and Cal. And she she decides that, you know, she knows in that moment that Jack's probably gonna not get off the ship and she doesn't want to him to die. Um, she's thinking, well, I guess we'll, you know, go down together. And she jumps off and she gets back on the sinking ship and she runs to him, and when they meet right there at the bottom of the grand staircase, and Jack just says, you're stupid. You're so stupid, Rose. I mean, that's a really critical moment in the movie because that's the equalizer. I mean, that's that's the moment where it doesn't matter who's a man or a woman in this relationship who's was first class or who was third class. She rejected Jack sending her off in that boat. She rejected this notion that because a woman because she's a woman, she is supposed to get into this boat and ding, ding, ding connects to everything that we discussed at the beginning of this episode. She is rejecting any man sending her off in a boat. No man is going to send her off in a boat. She's rejected it twice and she is going to see this sinking out. Now, I, I'm not going to, this episode's already getting long, of course, it's me. I'm not going to discuss the actual sinking in a lot of detail. I think, you know, it goes without saying that the rest of the movie from that point on is very much a James Cameron action film and a very well done one at that. And of course, you know, Rose is the heroine of an action film. And that's important, just like it was important to talk about with Cameron's previous movies. I would rather... I I would rather spend the last little bit of time talking about Rose, in terms of a discussion. A lot of people have I've heard it on podcasts, I've read articles to this effect about whether Jack and Rose would have had a chance in the society of 1912 if they had both survived. This seems to be a cultural, you know, I talk about fanfic of a conversation that people cannot resist and people love to talk about. And I, I, a lot of people feel the need to say that they don't think that they would have made it as a couple if they survived. Just to note, Cameron has said that they would have. He, in the commentary for the DVD at one point, says that, you know, he just says very matter-of-factly, well, Rose took the name of Dawson because she's thinking, well, if Jack had survived, we would have gotten married and I would have been Rose Dawson. So in James Cameron's mind, in the creator of these characters' mind, they do go on and they do get married, if he was to survive. So it's it's odd to me that people fight that. It's odd to me that people buy into the romance and intrigue and sweetness of this movie in so many ways, but then feel the need to point out that they don't think they would have made it in in quote-unquote real life. For For someone to be, for example, so gung-ho about you know, Rose is strong. Rose disconnected from her old life. She's a badass during the whole of this film. She's a badass during the singing. For someone to espouse all of that and then afterwards say, oh, <laughs> Rose and Jack wouldn't have made it because Rose would have kind of shrunken down and not been able to make it on the road as a woman or, you know, this idea that a relationship couldn't coexist with freedom to me, isn't it just as not feminist to say that a woman can't be with a man while she's liberated as it is to say that she isn't liberated? I or 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 as it is for her to not be liberated? I mean, if you're willing to buy in that these two people can fall in love in 3 days, why can't your imagination just settle in and also believe that they would make it moving forward from those 3 days? Why so th- so there there my my two pronged argument there because I know that was not those thoughts were not well organized my two-pronged argument there one that if you're going to buy into the idea that Rose is a strong liberated woman and that the character is feminist why couldn't you also believe that she could move forward in life and be in a relationship and also still be liberated and free and enjoying her life those the feminist thought would be that that's possible as well. And then the other prong <laughs> here would be, you know, it's a movie. And if you've bought into the imagination and the earnestness of this movie that they fell in love like this, why why, why not just let your heart and your mind soar? Let your heart and your mind soar and, and believe in it. Believe all the way in it that they would have been fine. Believe that this that you wish that the ship hadn't sunk and that they would have just, you know, disappeared off into the horizon and headed to Santa Monica. Just why not? I think so often we're cynical about movies and we get more cynical over the years. As a movie ages, we get more and more cynical and that's happened to Titanic. And we'll talk about that next week more. But why? Why? Just let your, let, you know, be free people. <laughs> be happy. Let your, let your heart be childlike. Just embrace it. And To me, it's weird because women who hate this movie seem to hang their hatred. Like you would hang a hat on a hat rack. They seem to hang their hatred of Rose on her being an idiot or anti-feminist because she falls in love. I just don't get that. I don't get it at all. And I want to, I did this episode because I want to reclaim Rose as a character who could and did have both, right? Earnest, sweet, perhaps even at times naive, admittedly, love, but also had the strength to move forward with a man or without a man, which she eventually does. She eventually gets married. But Rose leaves an abusive relationship in a time in 1912 where that would have been Unimaginable to this set of people that she's in, especially since she's quote, tainted by arguably already having sex with her fiance, and he already has potentially this power over her that he's marked her. In her later life, which we see in photos at the end of the movie, that was her. It was not, the photos are not of her with the man. You never even see what her husband, Calvert, looks like. What is this? What was his first name? Can't even remember. Do we even find out his first name? I don't think we do. Anyway, Calvert. But the pictures at the end of the movie, they're of her life. She's flying an airplane. She's on the beach in Santa Monica. She's an actress. So, yes, she gets married. She has kids, but her life was hers. And we are to infer that whatever reliance she had on a man in her life was positive and cooperative and healthy and mutually beneficial. In Titanic, human systems fail. But the individual, the woman, Rose, prevails and becomes free. And that's a statement that's I mean that's <laughs> the premise of this movie is launched, has launched a, a thousand think pieces, a thousand essays and that, um, you know, and I have to be honest, that phrase, as I'm looking at it in my script, I imagine I pulled that phrase, from an essay, and I don't have a direct citation for it, which is terrible, and I will try to find it. But um, but yeah, that's sums up a lot about Titanic and its cultural history, right? There's a hundred different ways to interpret the human systems failing and the individual prevailing. If you look at the micro and the macro of that night of that ship sinking, there's a hundred ways you could go with that interpretation. All right, (laughs) Kate Winslet said, quote, when Rose meets Jack, she cuts through all of the class and money nonsense and connects with something real and alive and passionate in his soul. And when I read the script, I was in floods of tears because it takes you to the point where you would do anything, absolutely anything to stop that ship from sinking. I think the role is, as I mentioned earlier, inextricably tied to Kate Winslet as well, and um, I don't really like to go into people into actors' personal lives um, but this I will mention because she has openly mentioned it in a lot of interviews and articles but in 96-97 she was actually going through the sickness and death of a very 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 close friend I believe someone that she had dated and then had stayed very close friends with who was um, dying of bone cancer I believe it was bone cancer and then passed away and that's why she wasn't at some of the Titanic premieres in 97 is, is that he had passed away and I believe she was at funerals and memorial service and billy zane said about that time when she was filming titanic and this was going on quote her sorrow this is about kate winslet not rose the character this is about kate billy zane said quote her sorrow was her light she gives you a peek into her pain it's a generous gesture and i think you know what kate winslet was going through at the time (laughs) obviously is a part of her, becomes a part of the character. It's a soulfulness in her eyes that's, um, I mean, who's to know for sure? I don't know her, but I imagine that might've played a part in the depth of how she portrayed that character. And Winslet's portrayal is married to what Rose is, and you don't have one without the other. I don't think anybody else could have done that role. When you watch that movie, we're all Rose, and Kate carries the entire movie on her shoulders, and that's why she's my favorite actress of all time. And, oh, man, I think about, <laughs> do you ever just, like, have, you know, obviously Titanic as a movie is one of those for me. But if you have movies or shows or, or you know, author. So, you know, if you have an actor, author, creator in some way that you just, gosh, did you just wish you could talk to them over a beer for, like, 10 minutes and just kind of ask what was going on in their <laughs> when they created these iconic moments. I That happens to me all the time. Maybe one day. Okay, it's interesting to me, and indicative of, you know, kind of life in the 90s, that the, you know, publicity machine on this film didn't highlight the women's liberation, the Rose's liberation angle as part of the trailer, as part of the promotional material for this film. I think if it were made now, it thankfully would definitely be a huge part of that. Honestly though, <laughs> I often think Cameron might actually laugh a bit at the overanalysis of this film. He used traditional archetypes, he wrote a love story, and it was successful I think in terms of what I've read about Cameron, he might view it that simply and and bluntly. Sometimes I think there is some amount of cultural anxiety over the fact that a man wrote arguably the most compelling and, you know, cross cross gender, cross-culture, kind of film love story of all time. A love story that, whether they want to admit it or not, a lot of men also are drawn to. And again, we'll talk about this more next week in sort of the last episode in this series, a sort of cultural study of the film and its resonances in pop culture. But, you know, this film has such a reputation in terms of its relationship to female audiences So some of the stats, I'm sure you've heard some of them if you've, you know, read anything about the history of the release of this movie. 63% of the audience for Titanic in its initial run was under 25, 60% was female, 20% was repeat audiences, and that's against a typically 2% repeat audience for any given film. So That's a big deal. By February 1998, 45% of women under 25 who had seen it had seen it at least twice. 76% of all repeat viewers planned to see it again. I am a living statistic. I saw it 13 times. (laughs) You know, I remember at the time there was such a marketing to women too, of products associated. There was the makeup line. Max Factor did the the Titanic makeup line and there would be the full page ads in Vogue or Cosmo and it wasn't Kate Winslet in the ads it was another woman on the bow of a ship in the makeup but it's gosh I wanted it so much but I was 13 I didn't have much pocket money of my own and I think my parents were very interested in buying me a bunch of Titanic makeup but uh, I remember that in the coveted I actually even looked online to see if anybody on eBay still had it (laughs) I, don't, I couldn't find anything. I don't know can you use makeup that's that is that old? Let me know if you have an opinion about that because if I find it I'm gonna order it but it's interesting that as a society we've credited the box office and all of that repeat viewing and all of the longevity and how people return to it. We've credited it all to Leonardo DiCaprio really. Which if you stop and think about, doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense mathematically because for the film to make as much money as it did globally, it had to and did appeal to male and females across the world, across many demographics. And James Cameron, it was actually on a podcast a couple of years ago believe it was one of just like an Apple talk. If you just search James Cameron on podcasts, on Apple podcasts, it comes up, I think it was at an Apple store and gave a talk. But he was talking about this, that, you know, as he looks back on the experience, it sort of perturbs him that the success of the movie is credited only to teenage girls going to see Leo because he sees it, you know, as the creator of the movie, he has a right to, to see this and to express this. But he says, you know, so much of the audience... Came for other things. And I think one of the things that the audience came for was Rose. And I don't know why it's so hard for us to believe that part of the repeat viewings might have been for the female storyline in that sense. I mean, yes, I was 13 and I went again and again. And I admittedly think I went again and again largely because of Leo. But I also have talked to plenty of people that were more in their late teens or twenties when the movie came out, men and women, and they went back again and again, but for other reasons and Rose was one of them. And and for her, you know, sort of storyline. So I think it's it's just not talked about enough in terms of, you know, what drove such repeat watching of the movie. I think in the end, this <laughs> movie being and the love story that it is, this interpretation of the sinking through a love story, through the story of a woman's liberation, and a very female story. It's a very female story. I think this has made people uneasy over the years as they process this film, particularly movie critics whose currency, especially more and more as of late, lies in takes, you know, hot takes, in knocking down tropes for the sake of knocking down tropes, and for no other reason, in my opinion, and not caring, you know, what messages or what meaningful timeless fables they may knock down in the process. I mean, there's a reason why this movie... Was successful in terms of you know archetypes. Obviously, he flips the hero heroine archetype, male female. But other than that, this movie really adheres to a typical sort of hero's journey archetypes. Cal is the villain, that sort of thing, and that's one of the reasons why it's so successful because that's what people I and mean, it's a timeless timeless strategy because that's what people need and want in their stories, and they want things that are digestible and moving and they want to feel connected and relatable. (laughs) And some innocence and earnestness is not a bad thing. It's often a good thing in terms of how a film sits with you, especially if you're young. And I think a lot of that is lost in modern film criticism. And this is not a film podcast Thought about starting one because <laughs> I have a lot of opinions in terms of uh, film history and film criticism, but I don't know that I have the credentials to do that. I think yeah, this thing it bothers a lot of people, and again, we'll talk about that more next week. In the end, of course, though Rose wasn't real, though she was based on a real artist named Beatrice Wood, who was born in San Francisco, but she was raised in New York City. At the age of 19, she abandoned her privileged background and went to Paris, where she studied acting and drawing. And she eventually returned to New York, where she acted with a French repertory company from 1914 to 1916, and also made friends with a group of artists. In 1928, she moved to California, and a deepening interest in ceramics led her to study with renowned potters of the time. She, in in the 1940s, moved to Ojai, California, where she became recognized as a pioneer in experimenting with luster glazes. I had to look up that that was because I have never done any pottery, which became a trademark of her work. She was known for having an insatiable passion for life, romance, and art, and she worked at her potter's wheel every day up until she was 103 years old, and James Cameron heard about her, met her, asked her permission for her to be the inspiration for Rose. So no, Rose Dawson wasn't real, (laughs) but in a way she was. She was based on this person who had left a life of privilege behind. And so that moment where we meet old Rose at the beginning of the movie and she's making her pottery, I mean, that represents the end of a life of a woman that was very, very much real. I also want to end with some of the other real badass women of the time, some of the badass women of Titanic, because they don't get spoken of nearly enough, and they weren't as rare as histories of this era would lead you to believe. Like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, there are so many stories of women at the time of the sinking who are brave and outspoken, and their stories need to be told just as much across classes. British, American women were already waking up to their abilities, their strengths, uh, burgeoning careers. Uh, changes in their lifestyle and their marriages and their families, as I spoke about at the beginning. So, I want to talk about a few women, and uh, there's more coming on all three of these women. I think, um, particularly uh, the last one I'll mention, I think uh, may become a whole collaborative episode that I do, and I'll 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 talk about that here in a second. The Countess of Roths, which I found out from Gareth Russell, I've been mispronouncing, and they mispronounce in the '97 movie. Uh, it's not Countess of Roths; it's Roths. I think I got that right. Garrett, did I get that right? Um, her name was her full name was Lucy Noelle Martha Dyer Edwards. <laughs> she um, marries and becomes the Countess of Rothis. The Countess boarded Titanic at Southampton with her parents who were traveling just cross channel, so they didn't, weren't headed to New York. Her and her husband's cousin Gladys Cherry and her maid Roberta Meoni. The Countess was headed to meet her husband, Norman Leslie, 19th Earl of Rothis. He was in the United States, so she was headed to meet them so they could spend their wedding anniversary together. The Countess, her cousin and maid were put into lifeboat eight where she was later put to the tiller and able seaman thomas jones said quote she had a lot to say so i put her to steering the boat but this was not meant to be a slight jones really admired the countess for how she manned the tiller that night he actually presented um, later on presented her with the brass number plate from the boat in later years they had a correspondence and stayed in touch and apparently the brass plate is still in the Leslie family kept as a prized possession the countess also is well known to have comforted women in her boat with compassion and tireless patience that night including some who were literally in the process of losing their husbands and were quite and I hate to use the word hysterical because I think too often women are associated with the word hysterical but I think It's a, you know, no matter your gender, it's a good word to describe how people were feeling that night in the water. Once aboard Carpathia, the Countess worked to help third-class women and children from Titanic. The London Daily Sketch recorded, quote, her ladyship helped to make clothes for the babies and became known amongst the crew as the plucky little Countess, (laughs) which, I mean, that's a little, I can interpret, um... The nickname several ways, but I think the heart and the soul of what they meant was that that she went to work. She was on board the carpet at the end. She went to work, which wouldn't have been expected of someone of um, you know, noble ranking. The newspaper added that a stewardess told Noelle, quote, you have made yourself famous by rowing in the boat. And then the countess apparently replied by saying, essentially, I didn't do anything. I just did, you know, what everyone should have done in that situation. One of the women the Countess helped on Carpathia was a woman named Rhoda Abbott. Abbott was born in Buckinghamshire in 1873, the daughter of Joseph Hunt and Sarah Green Hunt. She grew up in Aylesbury, but moved to the United States. In 1894, in Rhode Island, she met and married London-born middleweight champion Stanton Abbott, and the couple had two children, Ross Moore, who was born in 1896, which would have made him 16 in 1912, and Eugene born in 1899, making him just 13 in 1912. We know that by 1911, Abbott was divorced from her husband, which was not an easy process (laughs) in the early 20th century. She was unhappy in her marriage and got out of it. And this took a lot of agency at the time. And I talked about that in the Helen Churchill candy episode she goes back to England with her sons on the RMS Olympic and started supporting herself and and her sons working as a seamstress and also became a soldier in the Salvation Army. She realized that the boys were not happy living in England, though, and she booked to go back to America, obviously, on Titanic in April 1912, and they boarded in the third class. The night of the sinking, they were asleep when the ship struck the iceberg, but by 1215, A steward had let them know to put on life jackets and go to the ship's deck. They waited in line uh, with other third-class passengers, and they waited in the second-class saloon area. There, her son Rossmore is said to have knelt in prayer, asking that his mother's life be saved, even though... There was this sort of, you know, women and children only through the gate. The sons, and I'm guessing because they were young, and 13 and 16, they looked young. They were allowed through at some point with their mother to the lifeboats. They arrived uh, when one of the final lifeboats... Uh, they arrived on deck when one of the final lifeboats was being loaded. When it was Rhoda Abbott's turn to get in... Uh, She realized that her sons wouldn't be able to get in because they were male, and so she stepped back, refusing place in the lifeboat, and stayed on the sinking ship with her sons. When the ship sank, she was swept away from the deck. She tried to hold on to her sons, but very sadly, they were swept away. She was able to reach collapsible A, which was washed off near the officers' quarters, as we've talked about, and this is the collapsible that the men and one woman (laughs) balance on top of through the night uh, with their feet in the water. This is the collapsible that Lightoller is on, the one that Harold Bride, the wireless operator, is on. Several people on this collapsible succumb in the middle of the night, obviously fall off. It's very hard to balance in the cold on top of this. Abbott was one of the ones from the collapsible that survived. She was the woman on the collapsible, and she's rarely mentioned. So many books recount this collapsible as, you know, Lightoller's success, Brides, Gracie's, Jack Thayer's. It's, of course, it was, but it's portrayed as just only a male space. But Rhoda was on there. Her two sons were lost, and um one of their bodies was found. Ross Moore's body was later found. And finally, Evelyn Marsden, I believe the only Australian female survivor of Titanic. She was a stewardess on board. As a young woman, she trained as a nurse and she worked in hospitals in Melbourne. But she had what people who knew her described as apparently a wanderlust and a love for the ocean and for travel. And so she left her life in Australia to pursue her passions and to pursue travel. And to note, this is important, in her youth, Evelyn would visit a farm in South Australia and um, I think through some family friends and she learned how to row a boat against the tides and currents of the Murray River. Apparently not an easy task. I know nothing about Australian geography, but this is what I read. When Evelyn returned to Australia after the Titanic disaster, she uh, purportedly went back and thanked the family for teaching her how to row and to handle the boat. And she was also noted as a proficient equestrian. Here's a snippet from the Adelaide, Australia Advertiser, from 1912. Quote, Miss Evelyn Marsden, the stewardess on the ill-fated Titanic, was one of the cleverest horsewomen in the district. When living with her parents at Hoyleton, she was frequently seen on horseback, journeying between Hoyleton, Watervale, and Mintaro, and there was certainly no lady rider more graceful when mounted on a hack than Miss Marsden. As stated yesterday, Miss Marsden was among those saved from the wreck. I wonder if she rode side saddle or one leg on each side. What do you think? And also, I'm going to ask Chelsea Pinkard what she thinks, because uh, she and I have talked about her coming back on the podcast to talk about Evelyn Marsden. She actually recently was able to visit Evelyn Marsden's grave, and I believe that Chelsea has done quite a bit of reading and research on Evelyn, so she very well may be an episode coming your way sometime this spring. That would be amazing. All right, guys. Thank you, as always, for being here next week will be the conclusion of the 97 series. We'll talk about the cultural impact of the movie and have some fun talking about the cultural, the pop cultural references. Please keep them coming. I've received, I think like seven or eight um, from you guys just um, so far, just pop culture moments where Titanic pops up in a song, movie, show, you know, just when you've had a moment of oh my God, Titanic is is inescapable. It's everywhere. So I'd love to have a few more. Please keep sending those. Um, You can Instagram DM, you can email, whatever way you feel comfortable with, would love to hear. And also I've received a couple of really great, you know, like description stories from people about seeing the movie when it came out in 97 and what their kind of emotional connections were to it. So I would love more of those as well. Like a big chunk of next week's episode is just going to be me kind of talking about what I've heard from you guys. So please, um, I won't be recording for a few more days. So, you know, send those along. Absolutely. I would love to hear more from you. I would like to thank, very importantly, my newest Patreon members. I would like to thank Carson Meadows, Jerry Bradshaw, and Wendy Rashke. And I I, I say this every time when I thank my new Patreon members, but every time I receive the notification, I do a little happy dance. It's usually in my kitchen when I'm cooking dinner and hanging out with my kids. It's It's not something I take lightly. I thank you so much for supporting the show. The money goes right into the podcast. You know, I know I've said it before, but it's so true. Podcasting is truly a labor of love. It is something that I've grown to enjoy, but it has quickly turned into a full job, uh, which I love. I, you know, I, I'm a historian, I I love researching, I love writing. Uh, There's also the technical aspects of (laughs) production that are time consuming, um, which I didn't, before I did this, understand would be so time consuming, you know, things like editing, but I'm learning and I, it's, you know, fun and I do appreciate the support. It goes, all goes right into that. There's also a lot of costs of production on a podcast, Um, you know, not just equipment, but also, um, you know, hosting for a website, hosting for the podcast itself i think a lot of people don't understand that you know that is those are expenses so All that to say, it's so appreciated. I'm a one-woman show. It's very helpful. Uh, If you are able to support the show that way, it is patreon.com backslash unsinkablepod. At any tier, you get access to the bonus episodes at the end of each month. And starting at the end of March for the VIP tier, there are also going to be some Zoom meetups that we're going to do. I'm still kind of ironing out how that's going to go, but that'll be in late March. All right. Uh, Books. Uh, sources. I've got a bookshop link that is on my link tree on Instagram. It's in the show notes. If I've mentioned a book you're interested in or if you're interested just in seeing kind of the books I'm reading, using as my sources, I've got some collections going on there. I've also got a collection for the book club picks. So the books I've done so far, but also the upcoming ones are on there. So definitely check that out. Bookshop.org is a great site supports local booksellers, and you also support the pod if you buy through there as well. Speaking of books, (laughs) the book club episodes have been insanely popular. I am not exaggerating. The two book club episodes that I have done have been my two biggest downloaded episodes for the entire podcast, and I think it's, you know, if you look at not a data, I'm not typically a data analysis person, but that's sort of undeniable, the data that's coming through on that. So I'm going to be continuing to do those. And I would love to hear what books you would like me to feature. Please email me at unsinkablepod at gmail.com or reach out on Twitter or Instagram. My handle is unsinkablepod on both of those. Let me know what books you would like me to feature, and I will do my best to contact authors. I can't probably <laughs> have been really lucky so far. The first three, um, William Hazelgrove, Gareth Russell, and then Marches will be Hazel Gaynor, and I'm going to talk to her. I've been really lucky so far that I have been able to contact, and the authors have been so gracious and wonderful and willing to come on the pod so far, setting a high precedent. I don't know if I'll be able to have the author on every time, but I do. These Book Club episodes are something that are really important, and I'm seeing that y'all are really enjoying. So uh, let me know what you'd like me to feature. Uh, The rest of this month, we've got the last 1997 episode next week. Keep those uh, culture moments coming. Email me Uh, Then we're going to do a Black History Month episode on Joseph LaRoche. Story, actually, I didn't know a lot about. Um, There's a great book called The Black Man on the Titanic that is my main source, and I'm really excited to bring you that episode. Then also at the end of the month, I am interviewing the education director of the Titanic Museum attractions. He has agreed to come on the pod and talk, and that's amazing. Looking forward to it. So that's kind of what the rest of February will look like. And then I will be traveling some in March. So I'm hoping to get a couple of episodes done and scheduled for release while I'm gone. But I'll let you, I'll yeah, update you on how that's going and what March is going to look like. All right call that housekeeping, I guess, all that. <laughs> thank you for listening. Most importantly, thank you for listening. There's a lot of new listeners from all over the world, so welcome and thank you for being here. If you are enjoying the pod, I know I always say this, but guys, please rate and review on Apple. It really helps the visibility of the podcast. Um, you know, this this podcast is getting it's reaching a lot of people. It's really really exciting. It's growing its own legs and I am um, I just, I'm having so much fun. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Reach out to me if you have any questions, concerns, or want to discuss anything. Absolutely. Let me know. And yeah, I'll see you soon. Talk soon. See you next week. And we'll end our journey back to 1997 and then head back into regular episodes. All right, guys, have a great weekend. Bye. Bye.